Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes. This Spotlight series looks at the crimes of infrastructure, at who benefits and who is harmed in their making, and how. In Season 1, we'll be hearing about a mine in South Africa, a train line in Palestine, the infamous Guantanamo Bay prison, and a central bus station in Tel Aviv. And across the series, we'll hear what infrastructure tells us about those big, enduring political questions. Capitalism, colonialism and racism, and how people can and do resist. Welcome to this brand new series of Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes. We are really, really, really excited today to be joined by Shari Plonsky and Maya Halterman on Twistle. Listeners will have know will know now from the introduction to this episode and this series that these two amazing people with us are our collaborators on this series and producers, authors, writers, actually the brains behind it, let's be real. First contacted us about this project, Material Crimes, about, about, about a year ago now. It's the exactly a year ago. That what happened was is that we started talking about it when we we've only been working together for about a year and like three months Mm -hmm. and that was the first conversation we had was like what if we did a podcast and then you turned it into what if we did a really interesting (laughs) involved (laughs) intricate and then and then some and then we said that we had been listening to surviving society Mm. that we wanted to reach out to them and i think literally a year Mm. ago we started like the email thread of Mm -hmm. like what do you think what should we do Mm. and i guess before we sort of get into it about what material crimes um has turned into it would be really great to just tell the listeners about your initial thought process around what material crimes is and what you wanted the story that you wanted to tell what we wanted to do was take these quite like abstract academic ideas and try and translate them into a kind of much more accessible format, which is why we were thinking like we wanted to situate these in the context of like storytelling. And as you'll hear when you listen to the episodes, they are kind of each structured as a kind of story that unfolds. We started thinking about like the true crime genre and we wanted to kind of play with that and expand that genre to think about these kind of more like structural crimes, I suppose. And I guess infrastructure actually has a lot of like stories to tell and stories that kind of often get overlooked. Um, so that, I suppose, at least from my perspective, is kind of what we wanted to do. What do you think? Yeah. No, but that's exactly it. As you were talking, I was thinking also that the whole thing about being um, researchers who are interested in infrastructure means that you're trying to constantly unravel a kind of puzzle or a series of threads um, that are hidden in something that is so present and yet completely hidden. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. idea that something is really... Um, kind of lives as an ambient kind of sound in your life, things like infrastructure, but that if you start to unravel the kind of violence that makes them, the kind of um, historical kind of blood that's kind of living in those pieces of infrastructure, you have to do that unraveling, that storytelling, Mm -hmm. that, yeah, Mm -hmm. that detective kind of work to find out what is the thing that happened. And obviously we're going to talk about a little bit about this in this introductory episode, but just for the listeners, when we say infrastructure, what do we mean by infrastructure? Well, there's an academic way to say it, I suppose. Yeah. Like if you... Both the academic <laughs> and the everyday yeah. combined. But that's so yeah. infrastructure is this is both the physical and I guess virtual materials that undergird 
our world and yeah. like connect and undergird and you know the system of things that kind of that we kind of walk in on every day mm-hmm. you know like it is this idea of 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 connective I don't know I think the word that Lala Khalili uses is the sinews I sinews, guess it, yeah oh, I'm saying so we <laughs> the American think, so we can think like transport we can think trains we can mm. think prisons we can mm. think skyscrapers we can think schools we can think governments we can think courtrooms like the internet the internet. Yeah. The internet yeah. is a really important one to think about. But also but, the norms and legal infrastructure. Like, so the thing is about those infrastructures, the thing like like a prison is that it can sit as an individual site, but it's connected to other mm-hmm. sites, not just through like the way that all of them architecturally are connected, but the different legal legal norms and systems and military apparatuses that, that make them a connective mm-hmm. thing. Invisible infrastructure like regulations, rules, those mm-hmm. kind of things. Mm-hmm. I guess it's also like, you know, in a way it's something inherent in infrastructure and this I guess is why it makes it a kind of inherently political question is this like idea of the public, that the public has almost invariably some kind of a claim over the infrastructure, whether whether because it's like a public infrastructure like, you know, a transport system or roads or whatever, or because it's like serving consumers, like, you know, a mine that's producing a certain type of metal that then is used in a certain type of electronic good that then ends up in markets all over the place or because it's a factory where it's kind of processing things, you know, so it has some kind of public dimension. Infrastructure can mean, you know, it means different things to different people as well. You know, it's fundamentally something that has like a kind of material basis, I suppose, hence the name material crimes. I think one of the things that is, if I do say it on myself as a producer, um, (laughs) one of the things that's pretty amazing about material crimes is what the contributors and producers have been able to do is present academic concepts or political concepts in a way that is accessible but that still engages in a really thorough intellectualism and rigour. And I think in in the current climate that we're in within academia and society more broadly, like that is something that's really difficult to do because... Like you've got things like the so-called or quote unquote culture wars, etc. Et mm. Like people saying, oh, you're using words like critical race theory, racial capitalism, whatever. Like, what do you mean by that? This is just this is this is um, you're losing this flippantly like you're being anti whatever. I think what we've been able to do with material crimes is present very clear arguments about the detail of inequality, oppression and histories of of colonialism whilst also speaking to exactly what we mean by these concepts with case studies. Like, how the fuck do you argue with that? You can't. Mm. Like, and I think that that's, that for me, listening to the episodes is one of the best things about it. It's, It's clear, it's concise and it, it, you can't, it's so difficult to counter the thing, the, the, the cases and the different mm. material crimes that we present throughout um, the series and then later series two. When you're talking about these uh, material crimes that happen elsewhere, normally as a Westerner, I'm thinking, how am I connected to this? Mm. So normally I'm connected through the TV, which yeah. embodies certain ideologies of race, class already. So really there's a narrative already put over to me about this, about these sites that where these crimes are taking place. But the podcast kind of unravels these sites in a way that makes you think, okay, there's a connection here. Daniel's episode about looking at the Lomi mine in South Africa, it was a scar. But how does someone in the West encounter this? And it's, again, it's filtered by class. So 
it's a traded it's a traded company and most working class people will not encounter that company or understand that company or understand the goods that make up these this, the products that we use so you're kind of thinking right okay so the podcast has shown you that there's a connectedness here mm. we're linked to the world we're all linked this idea of global capitalism that you spoke about sharing in your episode the idea this we're all this interlinked this interlinked system that's mm. working mm. all the time and how do we kind of encounter this just following on from Tiso's point there that I also that I think speaks to what I previously said is that again coming back to the people that do not want our broad coalitions to have freedom for all the combination of the rigor and the case study case study points about uh, that demonstrate how we actually explain different academic and political concepts alongside that these clear lines of solidarity mm. which cross race class mm. um gender um are so profound and it's i don't know it just feels like such a brilliant example of how knowledge production can be transformative yeah, liberatory yeah. that's something that when you were actually talking about like how kind of compelling the stories are and that they start with this detail and they like, you know, they, they basically just like make the case really clearly and through these like really human narratives. I guess the thing that I felt when you were saying that was also like, I feel in our collaborate that we found a kind of amazing set of collaborators who are all like deeply politically invested in their research and the people that they've been researching with. So the stories that they tell are like stories of genuine meaningful solidarity rather than you know I mean we've all seen in academia the way in which it can be quite an exploitative space in terms of research and how the researcher relates to mm. their quote-unquote research subject but actually in this instance I feel like it's completely moved it, or at least it felt very much to me as if it's completely moved beyond that and and that's why they are so powerful because there is this like deep care and solidarity at the core of each episode I think and feel quite strongly. So what I wanted to say about that as well is that um, when you were talking about, you know, how do you bring together rigor and storytelling? And I think for all of the people writing these episodes, their their purpose, I guess, was not just to tell tell a story, but to tell a story that can contribute to mm -hmm. different kinds of struggles on the ground. And I don't think you need to, um, I don't know, narrow an argument or make it less rigorous or make it less deeply connected to historical and political research in order to be able to be in solidarity and contribute, right? Like the deeper your cases, I guess, the deeper the the research and knowledge you have, the more you understand why solidarity mm. works the way it does, why it's important, why struggles are happening in the way mm. that they happen. You know, there's a weird, I think, I guess it's a fallacy or a weird common sense thing about if you're contributing to a struggle, you can't have a deep or in-depth conversation or in-depth in scholarly engagement with it because there's always caveats in scholarly work. Mm. But actually struggles are based on these really deep understandings of, let's say, colonial violence that, you know, that's why you continue to struggle is because you understand that violence. And so I think all yeah. of those episodes do really speak to that and, and try to have a contribution to that. Obviously, the listeners will hear as the weeks go, weeks and months go on different contributions and different episodes from um, material crimes. But just as a kind of little taster, um, Maya, I was wondering if you could just mention a couple of the a couple of the subjects that come up. If you could spotlight a couple of them. 
couple? Well, there's, we've got four episodes. Yeah, we've got we four. Do, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do all four. Well, <laughs> we've, got other, we've got others that are coming through, but yes, all four. Yeah, yeah. We're well, all four all. in this, you know, in this season. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we've got the first episode will be Daniel's, which Tia already mentioned, um, which is about the, the Marikana massacre um, at a mine in South Africa, um, which is connected to London and to mining, the kind of mining networks in London. Shari's episode, actually, um, <laughs> on a train in uh, Israel and Palestine that is kind of about circuits of, of goods across the Levant and for those that don't know, sort of Israel, Palestine, etc. and the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and then we've got an episode... I knew you should, should be good at doing this, this summary. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got an episode on Guantanamo prison which I, I assume all the listeners will be familiar with. Um, and then finally, which is which is produced by or written by Shireen Fernandez. And then finally, we have an episode on a central bus station um, in Tel Aviv um, by Moore Cohen, um, which looks, I guess, at the kind of racial politics within Israel um, that kind of go beyond exclusively Israel-Palestine, I guess. Brilliant. Those are the four episodes of what, this series. Of this series. And we do have, we have other episodes um, yeah. which which uh, listeners will be hearing about later in the year, which go, which cover aspects like... Well, we have, well, the following season, it will be, we have from Nikki Falkoff. In South Africa. In, also in South Africa, which mm. kind of starts with a drive-by shooting but is ultimately I think a story of class and gentrification and and violence that kind of still is in an aftermath yeah. yeah an aftermath of of apartheid kind mm. of politics um we have an episode on um infrastructural punishment I think or electric, electrical electrical punishment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is um with Omar Jabari Salamanca who also appears on my episode because he is mm. an expert yeah, on yeah, infrastructure yeah, yeah. yeah um but he's writing about the particular targeting of infrastructure in Gaza mm-hmm. as a way to subdue any kind of anti-colonial struggles in Gaza mm-hmm. um we have also but, Paul's episode mm-hmm. which will appear on um on a on kind of a blowout of a gas uh, field in um, Bangladesh. Yep. And then there's Erai's episode, which is on a... The Kurdish. It's on a dam in Kurdistan. Um, and then we've got Jason Arday on gentrification in London. Mm-hmm. Actually, our one and only episode that's the, where the infrastructure is situated in mm-hmm. London itself. Um, which is so in interesting. the West. Which is so interesting because within the episodes already, like, the way... They've been produced to tell t- tell the story through the location, but then it always ends up in the fucking city of London. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, it yeah, always yeah. ends up in the city of London. Someone making money out of. But that's what I'm saying. How do you explain infrastructure when you live in the centre and you don't really feel the infrastructure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You feel yeah, it in a yeah. different way. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't feel it as oppressive. Yeah. You feel it as power. So walking here in Somerset House, you feel power. The building amplifies yeah. power. And yeah. even transport links, mm. transport here, even though we're doing this, the same kind of thing, mm. shipping capital around, mm. we just see ourselves as being productive workers or consumers, right? Mm. So it's interesting, the link between the colonial and the centre. Yeah. That's actually... That's such a good point. Really, such a good point about that thing of feeling power versus feeling the oppression of, of, of that experience of empire. Um, and it is true that, yeah, like it did cir- circulate itself back constantly to London mm. in each of the episodes, especially Daniel's. But even like in the episode on the train that I'm part of, is it's, 
you know, British Empire was a huge part of making that infrastructure and the kind of setting, I guess, the facts on the ground for how that train would eventually be thought of and re-inaugurated as, as part of, like, circuits of But of I was going to say, even in your episode, Sherry, when I was looking at, like, the, the idea of the train, train, the train track seemed as the idea of being modern, productive, but then I never thought of a train track being oppressive. Mm. And to the idea of removing stuff, because that's essentially was what one of the guys says in your things about removing or moving troops around. And that's what they use it to erase a group of people. And I'm like, oh, I never really thought of a train track to do that. We are obviously all academics here. Let's get into the critical reflection. To what extent do you think we've been able to produce a collaborative project which presents a kind of decolonized mode of knowledge production, but also is inclusive of voices in a meaningful way of scholars from the global south and the, and the stories from the global south. Like, do you think, like, if we're just thinking now, like us as academics, like what what are we doing? What are we doing that's good within this that we feel? But what could we do better on in the, on this stuff? I think it's important. I think that, I think that's part of doing yeah. like decolonizing decolonizing work, isn't it? Like just to, constantly being in in reflection. It's not it's not about self critique. It's like constantly reflecting mm-hmm. on how we can do yeah. and produce in better ways. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like I think actually that's an amazing question because it's the question that you you're never gonna. First of all, we're never gonna get it no, right never, because because yeah, yeah. the power imbalance is always yeah. present. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, like all of us are situated in the global north there is no fixing that mm-hmm. right like but but i think that point about so you have to constantly reflect it's never going to be perfect so you constantly have to just work towards getting better at it but i think so one way that you do it one way to help do it right is like you have to start from the beginning design from the beginning to try to think how do you open this up as much as possible but then the thing i guess that that we always need to consider and we had this conversation at some point is that certain Certain academics just have more time and freedom because of the positionality or the constant Mm -hmm. precarity, the way that class and race work in academia and gender, that certain people are always going to put themselves forward and feel really confident in putting themselves forward for a project like this, which is extra Mm -hmm. because you'll never get recognized for it. And certain certain people just won't. Mm -hmm. You they they need to be paid, they need to be somehow bought out of whatever other impacts are on their lives. So that's the academic part of it. But then the other side to that of, so what what we have been okay with or good with is that because we encouraged people to tell stories from a place and with voices and activists and said, actually positioned the, the issue of like resistance and activism essential to what people were writing into their episodes, they did have to be in conversation with people on the ground. So I think we did okay there, mm. but then we don't have enough writers from the global south and i think again like it's about translation is about paying people it's about you know the limits of what can be offered in terms of space and maybe that's something we can work on and towards in the future yeah i guess also like in a way there's a sort of like in what you're saying there's like a synergy actually with like why are we interested in infrastructure we're interested in infrastructure because it's like it really brings like material questions to the fore things like pay things like services that you have access to and like actually what you're talking about is a similar thing right it's like who who gets within academia who gets paid enough to do the kinds of thing to do things like this how how is the entire space structured and I guess like those are the kinds of things that 
I mean, <clears throat> I don't know how actually one goes about like tangibly changing those things, but those are the kinds of things that also need to change to not just be like become a question of like representation, more representation mm. somehow. I don't know how we have necessarily addressed that. Some of the things that we tried to do also was to like orient it towards more early career scholars and thinking about the ways in which this kind of work also helps integrate people into like meaningful communities um, like academic communities that also not not in too kind of instrumental way, but like that that like you know our spaces of solidarity, building more collaborative research, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but you know it's hard to get away from the kind of the, the like blunt material dynamics of the sector, I guess. The medium helps. I think one of yeah. the most powerful things in for all the all the all the episodes is hearing people on the ground talk about their experiences of wherever they live what they write and how they feel to do that in an academic setting because normally this will appear in the journal and it'll be quite dry but to hear people you can empathize yeah. it, it's, it's emotive right so you can feel when they're talking about Guantanamo you feel that the pain the sounds of it and which, you can imagine and it makes your imagination go right which is really interesting I think particularly in the Guantanamo Bay episode um my yeah critical academic ears sort of pricked up straight away the ears being those which don't which kind of want to criticise for the sake of criticising. You know who you are in academia. But um, I thought the Guantanamo Bay episode was incredible because I think it was so, like, the thick descriptions, the detail, the sound. But there are some people who I think perhaps would see episodes like that that are so in touch with the human side of that those levels of oppre- that level of oppression that would say that as scholars should we be doing that like should we be doing that kind of work like should we be and and my my answer would be yes well just because it makes you uncomfortable but then i guess the people perhaps that are on our side of in sort of broad coalitions would say that when we're doing work that uses as tiso says or presents platforms the voices of people on the ground what are we doing it for? Like, what is the aim of that? Is it is it about knowledge production? Is it about education? Is knowledge power in that situation? Do you know what I mean? Because we're we're talking about yeah material crimes, people's lives. Like, mm. how are we as academic? What are we use? What are we doing this for? Basically, part of me is constantly concerned with how easy it is in academia not to contribute. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it. It's so easy to abstract from actual participation mm-hmm. in in the struggles on the ground that you hopefully are writing with and and to um, because not just not it's not meant to be even a critique of academics, but academia has become so also overly exhaustive and extracts so much from people on the everyday and you know. As you know, like I'm currently involved in a marking boycott at Queen Mary, and I am going to talk about this for a second, where we are literally facing an administration that would rather mess up everything about its standards for its students, its care for its students in order not to negotiate with its union. Because, like, you know, this incredible feeling that anything, literally anything except for talk to its staff and treat its staff as if it's part of a community. So I do understand why academics get pulled into mm. the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy, the the like, oh, you need to publish three articles and you're done, and why that's a lot of work. But at the same time, I don't think it excuses us. Like, I think 
we have a responsibility when you're writing about violence, when you're writing about criminalization of populations, when you're writing about race and struggles on the ground. Speaking truth to power, but it's also Mm. using the knowledge that we have within the quote-unquote ivory towers and saying, look, this is what's happening. This is what's also happening. (laughs) This is what we can do about it. So this is what's happening being the violence. This is what's also happening being the solidarity and people struggling against those violences. And these are things that you can do about it. I think that's what definitely comes across in material crimes. I think of this scholarship as a as as one of the many tools in the kind of in the in the toolbox of of oppression of, to fight oppression. Sorry. So I think in Daniel's episode, one of the uh, one of the respondents, she said, "All we have is the paper. We ha- all we have is words." So we're adding our voices, our knowledge, because if knowledge is power, as one of the tools to fight this oppression, because all they have is these pieces of paper. The the power imbalance is so is so dramatic. So for, for our scholarship. Maybe we can help. I don't know how it helps, but maybe we can help yeah, yeah. in some way. Well, the thing I love about Shireen's episode, the Guantanamo Bay episode, mm. is that where she ends with is like, this is about closing these places down, mm. right? Like that there is actually a material thing you can do, which is like, it's not about repairing or making this a better prison. It is actually an boycott ab- subway. Mm. <laughs> Oh yeah, boycott subway. That will make sense when you listen to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the no, but that you get with I think within that episode is this understanding of like reform is not the answer, abolition is the answer, right? Mm-hmm. Abolition will give you tools to challenge how 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 we think about punishment, how we think about who is worth something, how some people literally are disappeared into parts of the world and tortured because we don't see them. And that comes back to your point earlier about, sorry, T, that comes back to your point earlier about what we see and don't see from the centers of power. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I find that what we were trying, I guess, everybody, and it's interesting because we didn't talk about it straight out with anyone. And yet every single person that is contributing had this vision of like, this episode needs to contribute to an actual material change in the world. And I think and I think that's what academic scholarship, to come back to what I was trying to think mm-hmm. through in my randomized thread before, that's what I think academia should be doing, is like, how do we contribute to social political change? Yeah. And I guess that's like, you know, ultimately it does to some extent for people that are working in the sector require that they do some of the things like publish articles and whatever. But like, if that that really can't be the limit of it and like things like this where actually what you're doing is like, um, I'm not just actually translating, I think like new things emerged out of this research process and like, or not just this research process, this like production process, this, you know, that, that actually far exceeded you know, the research that people had already done um, in a way that I think was like a really, I feel like we learned a lot in the process of of making a podcast, learn about like, learn about politics in a way, learn about um, storytelling, learn about research processes. And like all of that actually can also feed back into how you then like do the the kind of research that you have to do in order to remain within the sector, I suppose. Um, but that, I think, you know, if if what you're doing, if what, if your research is about politics, then you need to take a variety of approaches. You know, it's like a question of, like, tactics and strategy as well. And, like, this this kind of stuff should be central to the, the process of a kind of politically engaged mm. form of research. 
I'd love to go back. It's, you reminded me of, of like the beginning all of a sudden. You reminded me of like when we first met and we had our first conversations and, you know, Chantal a little bit laughing at all of us saying, less is more, guys. Learn, <laughs> learn how to do the less is more approach to academic writing and thinking and storytelling. And then your stories can actually have a life of their own instead of trying to have 40 interviews on a range of level, you know, mm. like just like try to tell your story in, in this kind of simple terms. And mm. I think and I think that was one of the things we learned. How, we learned to be rigorous, but with the less is more as our, our vision of like, and we told it to every single collaborator as they sent us in like the 20 names that they wanted to interview. And we're like, we're just going to imbibe Chantal. Less <laughs> is more. And I, must, they, I, must, I must say, um, Georgia Foriado. Executive producer of uh, Science Science Society. He's shaking his head because I just use his government name. Less is more is from the same school of thought of Kiss, aka Keep It Simple, Stupid, um, <laughs> which is um, George's. I'm not calling you others. I'm not calling them others. I can't call you others. I can't call them others. It's a fake name. <laughs> fake name. Anyway, no, it's hard. It's so no, but I've shown. I think that point is so important because I think it is so hard in academia to get academics, even when we have academics come on the usual show, Simon Society, to talk in very, um, not, I don't want to, do, I don't want to engage in anti-intellectual um, ideas and discourse around how we talk as academics, because as Bell Hook says, we have to make the case for speaking and engaging in scholarship in a scholarly way. However, we do find it hard to sometimes call a spade a spade in mm. academia. And I think that, now, in this current political urgent moment, we do need to get better at, yeah, keeping it simple and less is more. Because um, there are a lot of us. So if we're all doing a little bit less, but if there's more and more of us doing more of this kind of work and we're all doing a little bit less, then the, the voices can come through. I, I think sometimes as academics, what we try to do is aim for balance, right? And balance in this, especially in this particular political moment, is a difficult thing to have. We don't need it. We don't need yeah, it. we don't need it. We don't need it. I mean, they're crimes. It's all cri they're crimes. This is cool. I have to stage. challenge that. Like, there's no part of me that ever tries to be. I'll be like, it's funny that I'll let you yeah, finish your thought, and then I have no, to throw that back. No, I was like, just saying, in academia, we we normally search for balance, right? So when. From the very first time you start doing essays, you're looking for the most balanced way to do it, right? You're trying to get all the points across. Would you say that Surviving Society is balanced? No, no. No, no, no not at all. all. <laughs> but no, no. Yeah, a, but ba balance is like another word for, you know, a kind of another word for like, yeah, yeah. For, and that, which which mm. ends up supporting power, right? Mm. Like, mm. like, and as someone who writes about Palestine, I'm constantly asked, like, but where's the other side of that debate? Where's the other? Where's the balance? And then I'm like, you know what? You can have balance everywhere except for in this room. You yeah. know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, like, yeah. I think that your point is valid. That that kid, like, students get taught. Oh, you need two voices in the argument. You need mm. all those multiple sides. You need to be able to read history as if it has good and bad point. But like, some things can't be debated and yeah. shouldn't be debated. No, and actually, in a way, that's when like the kind of basic logic of crime is quite helpful because like when you're looking at a crime it's like there's a perpetrator there are the people that the the thing mm. was done to you know like mm. there's there's a very clear kind of antagonism i guess and yeah. you can really if you follow that you can really if you follow it and you've got the right politics you mm. can really pinpoint who is responsible who's accountable who do we need to be like 
you know, directing our political energies towards challenging. And coming back to the point, I think, on what you guys were talking about in terms of keeping it simple and, and less is more, I think the other thing that has been able to come through in material crimes, which I didn't anticipate, I didn't think would be possible, but it's something that's very much embedded in our intellectual projects and surviving society, is bringing that personal into it in a way that that doesn't over fetishize lived experience but brings in personal in a very political way and show identifies how people or contributors relate to the issues at hand because i think academics maybe this talks about your maybe this comes to your point here about balance academics often want to position themselves as outside of the personal even the ones that write about some of the most incredible solidarity infused um, scholarship want to separate themselves from that and I think that having everyone engage in a way that feels personal to you said emotive earlier like I think it's been really important for us um, to hear back I was going to say that's, that's what I was trying to kind of point across so when you speak about it in those ways it's the passion comes through it, it is personal yeah, and you have a personal so, saying, Yeah, because like, people, academics will come into yeah. this studio and they'll kind of talk as if it's not personal. I'm like, yeah, but why are you studying this? Why are you studying those people? Why? What? Tell us, how did you come to be interested in this? But that false dichotomy, the idea that there's a kind of neutral voice creates a, a fake objectivity that exists. And mm. that's not what we're here for. And that's yeah. what... We tried to put it in the hard sciences, but it doesn't even exist there. I was mm. speaking to a guy yesterday on the plane over and he was, he's a, a, he was an astronomer. And he said, in the sciences, there's a shift away from the objective nature. And he said, there's a shift towards what he, what he called overview theory. He said, when scientists go up into space and they see the Earth for the first time, they understand the project is no longer a national or an international thing. He, he says, we're all interlinked. And he said, this is the move from science. Science is trying to move from this objective position to an overview position. And this, and I, I think material crimes reflects that. And that's what we were talking about on, on the plane. It's all relevant. <laughs> um, that actually also made me think, like, I guess when we were talking earlier about, like, what have we, like, learned from this sort of approach? In a way, part of it was just that we wanted, like, I thought it would be, or I, we thought it would be cool to tell stories like this, especially because of the way that academics are kind of continually encouraged to write. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the things that I felt like we've had to go through a lot of is, like, unlearning because like the kinds the kind of thing that you're describing when people come into this room and it's really hard for them to just like actually talk about themselves that's because people go through this like ridiculous rigorous training like you're 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 told encouraged you know in every way kind of saturated in an environment that like tells you to like abstract yourself from the situation and kind of abstract abstract like the more emotive personal things from what you're writing about and and write in a sort of basically like quite dispassionate way and actually like we continually to ourselves to our collaborators had to be like you know you know try and unlearn some of those habits think about how you could write this differently and it's hard like we found that it was quite challenging to do because they're so ingrained um, but it's been really rewarding and I feel like actually like hopefully also in the event that we like come to write uh, I mean I've never written an article <laughs> but in the event that we like you know when we're doing these things again actually it will like feed into the way that we do the academic writing mm -hmm. as well which is a really like enriching and kind of in a way unexpected outcome of this whole process I think you brought up something super important there about like 
the idea that you had to we had to separate or unlearn something to do this, but then this absolutely needs to feed into what we write in academic spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think I think doing more creative work, creative storytelling work, enables you to do that other stuff better because. Because I can no longer read jargony mm-hmm. writing, I find it really jarring and I find it really frustrating. Sorry, I should sit up. <laughs> I was being I was being lazy. My, our producer is mad at me now. Um, <laughs> no, um, no. But I think that I think that point about like why is academic work so exoteric? What are we trying to shield it from? Like why do we make it so removed from the kind of conversations that we have? And why? Why can't we tell stories better also in those spaces? I was reading some Stuart Hall and, and about the idea of binaries, right? Academic work is, is focused on the written word and writing is the power. But in most cultures, it's the voice, right? The voice telling stories is where the power always was for a long time. But when due through colonization, universalization of Western modernity, the written word has come to be seen as, as the only way to communicate stories. And that's not, that's not how it's always been. And I think this process... For T, you, are you quoting from our article? Huh? Are you quoting from our article? <laughs> <Am I>? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Trademark. <laughs> we but, wrote this. It's just like the idea that the binarization of this, like the kind of conflict between voice and the written word. I think which one... I think the podcast does a good way of kind of mediating the two, really. And particularly with material crimes, because mm. just for the, for the for the purpose of the, for the listeners, for the detail behind producing it is, um, and I wasn't necessarily all about this, but you guys convinced me. Contributors had to write a, write a script and a treatment. Can you just explain to listeners what that was? Oh, I did want to come back to that because yeah. actually, where the where this all began too, with like as we did this process, was we asked to like tell us what is a true crimes treatment actually because he he was really into listening to true crime dramas and podcasts on YouTube he was and he was like okay this is how you do it and like I could let you tell us that story like I just thought it was so I I think I think well after speaking to George quite a lot about production it, it follows a thread right and they all follow a certain format. How do you tell a story in, a, in an engaging way? And I think that's what those true crime stories do really well. They tell a story in an engaging way, what I find them engaging. And then I think to go in terms of that process, so one of one of the reasons, though, is that we had like so many contributors that were going to participate. And so two things that kind of went through our minds is that there should be a common thread, but also the unlearning isn't easy for everybody. You know, like not everyone can tell stories the same way. And we needed a way to like also enable people to go through that process, I think, of like how do I tell a story? And so by giving them a structure, which we also told them they could break and they could do their own thing, but by giving them a structure, it gave them a way to kind of work through how is this going to look? Who do I want to speak to? How does the story get told? And so we went through a lot of also like drafts with all the contributors, including myself. Like I had to do multiple drafts to get it to a place where it told stories and 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 kind of spoke to the things that people spoke to the interviews and spoke to the sounds and had a way of like thinking and listening differently. And it's funny that you mentioned the power of writing versus these binaries between writing and sound. For people like me, 
where writing is the only place I feel comfortable. What became also important is that we had really ama- so many people collaborating on how do you tell stories. Also, like we have this incredible sound engineer who's on the project who's not in this room with us. Her name is Bronte uh, Dow, and she's incredible. And also working with all of you about how do you tell stories in a vocal way. Like for me, as someone who only knows how to write, like knowing somebody else was going to like support us in that way mm-hmm. actually made it possible for me to tell stories in different ways than I'm sure for other people. And also Maya is is someone who loves and listens to podcasts. So she had this in her mind of like, how do we need to be able to go through those different levels of treatment, script, sound, back to treatment, back to script. Like there's also that iterativeness that you took us through. I mean, I was actually just thinking about some of the stuff that I thought was really interesting, which was like around how words when they're then translated into like spoken word become different Mm. like and the story becomes different and the way you tell the story becomes different and actually that like that then required a sort of back and forth which was really again it was just like a kind of enriching thing but also like in to use academic language it was a sort of like embodied thing it was Mm. interesting to see how things like take form and assume a kind of life and like not just like a single life like a sort of community in a way because each episode does have a kind of community embedded within it I suppose Um, and that was just yeah it was quite like interesting and magical to see having we should also say disclaimer Shari and I when we started when we started thinking about this Never made it. I listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> Shari doesn't even really listen to podcasts. Like, no Except experience. for Swan Society. No, but Except I was going to say the only podcast I was yeah, yeah, listening to. No, 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 no. It's true, not true, not true. like, okay, this is the story of why we approached you guys. The only podcast I listen to is Surviving Society. Thank and you, I listen to you, it Shari. all the time. And I was like, I want to be in conversation with them. And, yeah. and, like, and I'm also like... Yeah, I was like the only that was it was it was like a really funny like literally listening to you guys every week and going, do you think they'd want to talk to us? <laughs> like <laughs> they were like you're. I do think that you all have a way of making you know. I'm not this for those listening. If this ends up in the episode, this is not a plug for Surviving Society. It's uh-huh. literally, I've never experienced generosity in the way that I experienced generosity with you guys and like. And I knew that listening to the episodes, I was like, they know how to make people feel worth something. We're oh, so that's pretty no, but that's so lovely, Shari. But it's sad that academia like yes. does the opposite of that. It does the and opposite that, yeah. all the time. And yeah. even when you're like sharing um a conversation that is you do have okay, so like that's not fair to everyone. And I feel very lucky because I do have lots of academic so. colleagues and friends who are all about starting from joy, creativity, and generosity. To the point where, like, like I recently was sitting at a conference with a friend. Her name's Aya Nasser. She's incredible for future episodes. <laughs> but um, And she kind of said, if you start from that place of joy, creativity, and generosity, academia can be amazing. And the work and research we do and the methods we use can shape us in very different ways. And I almost started crying when she said it. I was like, that's how I feel. But, like, that is genuinely not the starting point in academia. And it is something I've felt so much from listening to the to the episodes you guys were doing at that point and I was like I really want us to be with them if they'll take us <laughs> and then that has actually been really borne out in our collaboration like our meetings have been an absolute riot <laughs> so fun and like so many ideas it's just like really it's really exciting to be able to come into a space and be like what can we make 
happen? Like, what could we do with this? Rather than being like, I don't know, how how should it be? Yeah, like yeah, what yeah. could it be? Mm. That's been really exciting yeah. and really fun. We're all, we're just we're really lucky, um, as we say on this show, um, we're so lucky that we've had the listeners and support to be able to keep this going. But the future of Surviving Society lies in collaboration and collaborative projects. So we're just really yeah, I feel very fortunate to have been able to start this that that journey off with you guys and yeah material crimes and all our other collaborators who obviously aren't yeah. here yeah but like it you know wouldn't be anything without all of them yeah and we haven't even mentioned frederick yet oh yeah frederick oh, we need to oh, give yeah. a little, little shout out to so the there will artists be a, there will be an um artistic website launched early autumn um, which which you guys which you guys will see and be able to visualize material crimes as well as hear material crimes. Um, yeah, that's very exciting. But yeah. even those visuals have like gone through a process of kind of translation, you know, mm. a bit like translating word to sound and then translating visuals to this like new form. It's all yeah. It's, there's a lot of kind of translation work going on. I also wanted to go back to again like coming back to some of our first conversations about. And I think this is also about the less is more thing is that the reason we could think about less is more is because and I'm I'm now quoting again from those original meetings with Chantal about like the idea of an intellectual arc that each episode doesn't hold all of the answers that they that they are building on each other. And the whole series is meant to be a collective conversation about infrastructure, colonialism, capitalism, and the way that they operate as part of our everyday movements and, and, and lives, you know? And and I think it's keeping that in mind also meant that, okay, if I didn't finish telling the whole story in one place, somebody else is going to pick up that thread and take it further. And then even this episode or the little kind of um, conversations that you're you're all having with each of the individual contributors, all of that contributes to a, the larger conversation we're all trying to have and don't individually own, right? Like that's mm-hmm. part of collaboration too. Is like, and each collaboration can be uneven, and each collaboration can be different as long as like collectively we're trying, I think, to produce something together that that can change the way we think about these things or or think about how to talk about these things. I also feel like that what you get in the kind of cumulative thing of of the kind of season arc and then hopefully the season two arc is also you see the kind of the geography of these quite like abstract things like capitalism. You see the unevenness because it, you see you the geography it. of the fuckery. Yeah, the fuckery. Fully, like, <laughs> yeah, you, you fully. see it. You yeah, really yeah, see yeah, it. Yeah, you yeah, see yeah. it when you listen. Yeah. When you did, this is also why I would encourage everyone to listen to all episodes. You <laughs> see it kind of as you see how these different sites interlink, how these different like quite disparate geographies connect up through places like London um, and elsewhere, and and so you start to kind of get this like broader more global anatomy of how the fuckery operates Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um which is yeah a case that can't really be made on its own it requires this like collective effort that was brilliant guys thank you so much for joining us for this introductory episode of surviving society presents material crimes when i say surviving society presents material crimes i kind of want to do like a voice like i want to do like material crimes material i think you should i think you should do it you are listening to when it comes down to it when it comes down to it i am not dynamic cool enough material material that was sick that was really 
really good material crimes. Um, listeners, <laughs> you, are, you are in for a treat. This is definitely one of the best things we've done on Surviving Society and we've been going now for five years. Yeah, so they're sick, sick, absolutely they're sick, brilliant. They're sick, they're sick. Shari, Maya, legends forever. Big up also Bronte and Frederick and also Amber Jones. Um people that are behind the scenes that have helped with the production the artistic expression which comes across in both the sound and the visuals which you're going to all see (laughs) listeners you're in for a treat enjoy material crimes you've been listening to surviving society presents material crimes season one please follow rate subscribe and review on your preferred podcast platform